Okay, Tim Davies, Fast Ship Performance then. I've written another post, but this one's back in uh, September. I just haven't had time yet to really get this uh, out as a podcast, so I'm going to do it now. I wrote one on David Cameron as well, which is popular with some people, not with others, and I'll make sure I get that down as a podcast. But what I am doing is a lot of posts um, in the car at the moment for people that are asking me questions under the Twitter hashtag, um, hashtag AskFJP. And what that means is you can ask me any question about flying, or performance, and I will answer that for you whilst I'm driving in the car because I have not got time anymore to answer the amount of emails that I get, which is quite significant. So ask me a question on an email or on Twitter or in a Facebook comment, uh, anything like that, and I will answer that for you in the car. They're proving quite popular. Uh, you can find them if you just go to um, Fast Jet Performance's YouTube channel and you can see that or search for Ask FJP on YouTube. Right, this post then I put out because it's quite pertinent, especially with women. Uh, in management positions and a lot of pilots as well that I find. It's about self-sabotage. I'm just going to read it straight out. Um, any comments you want, I'd really appreciate you sticking them down on the website or on, on Facebook. But um, it's called Why You Self-Sabotage? How Planning for Failure is Giving You Permission to Fail. My team of instructors had just told me that they were never going to fly with him again. And here he was sat right in front of me. He had no idea. If you are a student going through military fast jet training and the instructors won't fly with you, then that's it. You fail. It really is that simple. I'm not going to fly the test for you. You're good enough to pass this course, but you just need to believe that you are, I shouted at him. It was the first time I'd raised my voice in over five years of teaching fast jet pilots. I don't want to see you for the rest of the day. Don't go to the gym. Don't go home and play Xbox. I want you to go and think of five honest reasons why you shouldn't fly a frontline military aircraft. Tomorrow, we'll fly this trip again. You'll pass it when you finally believe in yourself and not a second before. He wasn't a bad student and he'd had a good flying course. He'd made some early mistakes and then flown a few trips again, but his performance wasn't out of the ordinary. He was just having trouble completing the last couple of sorties. It was common. But often an instructor will get upset with the student. Sometimes a student will be uncharacteristically underperforming and this can be due to problems at home, a bad night's sleep or an indifferent approach to their training. The first two we can deal with, but the third just gets us irritated and instructors don't get upset easily. We are some chilled out dudes. I once had a student try and fly me into another aircraft when he was late joining into formation as we entered cloud. A student who pulled so aggressively to avoid some birds that he overstressed the aircraft and caused me neck pain that lasted a whole year. Another who almost ejected himself just as we were landing because he thought we were going to hit the runway too hard. Was I angry at any of these students? No, not at all. It's just what baby pilots do and was what I did when I went through the learning to fly process. It's part and parcel of being a flying instructor in each one of these events added to both of our learning experiences. The events would eventually make us both better pilots. But whenever one of my instructors had worked himself into a whirlwind of rage, it was because the student had been directly responsible for his poor performance, not through a lack of ability, but a lack of application. It's almost as if they are doing everything in their power to fail the course, my instructors would tell me. You are correct, I would reply. They are, and it's called self-sabotage. 
Self-sabotage is what we do to ourselves when we feel that we are not good enough to attain the success we crave. It is more common than you think, and you can probably recall many celebrities who have done it to themselves over the years. Britney Spears cutting her hair off, Winona Ryder shoplifting, Mel Gibson's anti-Semitic remarks to a police officer after being charged with drink driving, Lindy Lohan's multiple breakdowns, Whitney Houston's drug addiction, and Nicolas Cage's self-inflicted financial troubles, to name a few. M&M's drug usage and dependency on Xanax, Valium, Vicodin, Ambien, Methadone, and alcohol was affecting his ability to rap, and as a result, he was not proud of his album, Relapse. He had been self-sabotaging his own road to success, but his celebrity and the industry drug culture were factors that allowed him to not have to account for his actions to others. Here's a quote. I was taking so many pills that I wasn't even taking them to get high anymore. I was taking them to feel normal. I was a terrible person. I was mean to people. Obviously, I was hiding something. I was fucked up inside. And people with those kind of problems tend to put this false bravado. Let me attack everyone else so the focus is off me. That was Eminem back in 2011. Now, people often live in a cage of their own creation. We think it's what we want, but often we are wrong. We force ourselves to accept society's ideals as our own. I must own a house. I must find a job. I must get married and have children. These are just some common themes that many of us buy into. We often ignore our own desires and do what other people think is the right thing to do, even if it is making us unhappy. Like trying to be a world-class musician, find fame and wealth, or fly frontline military fast jets. Surely this shouldn't be making me unhappy. I mean, everyone is so proud of me, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. The pressure to achieve is huge, and often we struggle internally with doing what we think is the right thing. Here's a quote then from Russell Brand. We are told in our culture that it would be really good to be famous and rich. And it is compared to being really, really poor. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hoping that someone is going to sling me back into Essex working in a factory. I don't want to do that. But the glistening spectacle, we all know this now, does not nourish us in a real way. So I was getting the things I thought I wanted as a kid. And I was thinking, this doesn't work. Why is this not working? That was Russell Brand. In the 70s, a Canadian psychologist and professor named Bruce Alexander conducted a series of studies into drug addiction known as the Rat Park Experiments. In them, he found that rats that were housed in isolation consumed more morphine than rats that were housed in a rat park, a theme park for rats with clean sawdust and cool rat entertainment things where they could socialise with their rat buddies. When Alexander removed the rats from their single cages and put them all together in the park, he noticed that when offered the choice between plain water and their normal sugar water with morphine, they mostly chose the water. What he found was that addiction arises in disparate and fragmented societies because people use it as a way of adapting to the social dislocation that they are experiencing. When people feel caged, they will ultimately try and fight back and animal urges are difficult to suppress. It can help explain the UK referendum result when a large and marginalised underclass felt that they'd used the vote to fight what they felt was an unfair attempt by the privileged elite to force their will onto them. It's why most drug addicts tend to come from poor and underprivileged backgrounds where they feel they cannot comply with society's demands. The Facebook, celebrity and success culture 
forces us into believing that everybody else is living a happier life than us. And this can be very damaging. It creates a feeling of insecurity as we do not feel as successful as those on our computer screens. And this, in turn, means that we do not feel included. We feel an outsider and become more solitary and detached. Wanting to be someone else is a waste of the person you are. That was Kurt Cobain from Nirvana. And because we don't feel worthy of the success we crave, we put up intentional barriers to stop us achieving it. If you don't believe that you deserve something, you won't allow yourself to have it. The woman who prides herself on the perfect marriage, but because she is married to a man who is always working away, has an affair with her personal trainer. The guy who goes to the gym because society tells him that he has to look good on his Insta feed, but who secretly makes poor food choices. The pilot who, the night before an important flying test, has too many beers with the guys and doesn't do any studying. And you know why this happens? Because when people get divorced because of their own indiscretion, don't look as good as they should on their social media accounts, or they fail their flying training course, they don't have to blame themselves. It was his fault the marriage failed, he was away the whole time. Of course I could look better, but life is too short not to have the odd treat. I would have passed my flying training, but there are pressures you don't understand. I mean, you have to relax a little sometimes. Here's a quote. If it's never our fault, we can't take responsibility for it. If we can't take responsibility for it, we'll always be its victim. That's Richard Bach. Often, we sabotage our own success because we don't want to feel like a fake or an imposter. People feel that it's only a matter of time before their friends and colleagues find out that they really are just not that good. Quote here, I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. That was Sally Field, an actress at the Academy Awards. Remember Amy Winehouse turning back to alcohol after a period of abstention? It was easier to deal with the immense fame she was receiving if she could just soften its effect on her. I mean, what if it all ended at the tender age of 28? It wouldn't be her fault. It would be the lifestyle that she was forced to lead, an alcoholic one that was forced upon her by the business. Now, people often use fear, F-A-E-R, to not fulfill their true potential. Fear is find excuses and reasons. And this can often be found with people training in demanding professions. If you think you're not worthy of the position, you will unconsciously work very hard to bring yourself back down to a level you believe you should be at. It's our default. And I often hear people say, I would push for promotion, but I just don't want the responsibility. I was going to ask for a raise, but I'm probably not worth the money at the moment. I'll do some more training courses first. I was going to apply to university, but I'm not very academic. Or this won't work. I can't do this. I'm too busy right now. I'm just not ready. I'm just not good enough. Pick your favourite excuse. Now, women not leaning forward in the business meeting or a guy with a great idea not speaking out in case he is ridiculed. It's very common to feel this way. And I've written about it before. It's called imposter syndrome. And you can find that on my website. Um, Fast Yet Tim, imposter syndrome. And you'll find that essay. Mahatma Gandhi says, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. This is why some pilots unconsciously fail themselves at flying training. They do not believe in the heart of hearts that they should be flying frontline military aircraft. They think surely only the really talented people do that. And they look for ways to abdicate their responsibility in being successful. I had to drink some tea. I was that guy that did that. I failed my A-levels at college. 
Then I went on to struggle my way through a foundation course before struggling my way through my degree and almost being thrown out of university for low grades and poor attendance. Surely only the wealthy and talented went to university, I thought, and my family was neither of those things. I wanted to join the military, but thought that military officers had to be super clever and that I wasn't in that league as I'd been to a state school and wasn't privately educated. Eventually, I found enough courage to apply to the Royal Navy, but I was still very unsure of myself and I felt like a fraud and that I wouldn't fit in. I didn't bother to read about the Navy. I didn't speak to anyone about it. I didn't think I'd pass anyway, so why put the effort in? And I was right. I went to the interview and I failed miserably. I got what I deserved. They told me to go away, not to call them for a year. So I had to push trolleys for a supermarket chain and work in a small engineering firm whilst living back at home with my parents. But during this time, something happened. My parents had never been to university and had left school young to work in the public sector. Even though their jobs didn't pay very well, they'd managed to put all four of their children through university. This amazed my dad's friends, as it just didn't happen back then when only 10% of children did degree courses, unlike the 50% today. I felt bad for not rewarding my parents' efforts by failing to get into the military, and I knew I wasn't taking my application seriously because I was lacking in self-belief. So I stopped seeing my old friends who had hung out out the score, the friends who were accepting the norm and letting their lives be dictated to them by the expectations of their family and friends. I had nothing against them, but I needed to knuckle down. I'd taken a hit from failing to get into the Navy and I had to get back on my feet again. Here's a quote, and I love this quote. When they knock you down, you get up and ask for more. There's one formula. All you gotta do is start and stay hungry. That's Ed Dunn, head coach, Martin Luther King High School. Start and stay hungry. I love that. The Navy said that I'd lack teamwork, so I joined the local rugby club to prove them wrong. It was Portsmouth Rugby Club, but everyone started in the fourth team. Think about that for a second. It hurt a lot. I also joined the Royal Navy Reserves and worked in local charities to help the poor and homeless. And then, less than six months after I failed my entrance exams for the Navy, my father said to me, give the Navy a call again. Tell them that you're bored and really want another go. But they told me I couldn't reapply for a year, I said. Tell them you'd done your years growing up in six months, he replied. So I called them up and after only six months, I was back at the Royal Navy's Admiralty Interview Board. I felt I was there for a reason. I can now add so much more value to the service and that was where I was supposed to be. I explained that I was super enthusiastic, had read everything there was to read about the Navy and was focused on a career in naval aviation. I got a stern talking to for wasting their time the first time around and was sent away empty-handed. I was gutted. But a week later, I got a letter in the post with a start date for my entry to Britannia Royal Naval College, Dartmouth, and at the time, I had the biggest difference in scores between my first and second tryouts that they had ever seen. I'd finally done it. I often write about how important it is to have a plan B. Somewhere to go when the unexpected happens. But I'm often reminded that to have a plan B means that you're more likely to not achieve your plan A. I recently heard of a study where both groups were given a task, but one group were told to think about a plan B, an alternative course of action, in case they couldn't achieve their primary goal. The study looked at three experiments where people were asked to come up with a plan B. Should their original plan fail? What they found was that those who had come up with a plan B were less likely to achieve their goals than those who were not told to come up with an alternative. Not only 
were those who had a plan B less successful, but they were found to have less interest in reaching their original goal too. The research found that when someone plans for failure, they are inadvertently giving themselves permission to not succeed. If you think about it, it makes total sense. When you go for a job interview, your friends say things like good luck, and this abdicates you from any responsibility you might have had in passing the interview, as anyway, it's just down to luck, right? Here's a quote, don't become a victim of yourself, forget about the thief waiting in the alley, what about the thief in your mind? That's a guy called Jim Rohn, it's a bit deep that, isn't it? A bit deep, the thief in your mind. All you could do as I found myself doing recently when I applied to join a company that I really didn't want to work for, but I believed I could bring considerable value to. I thought, it doesn't matter if I don't get the job, it will just be good interview practice. In my own flying training, I never had a backup plan. Not that I planned it that way, but that I just couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to do with my life. Maybe that's why I passed, because I couldn't ever see myself doing anything else. I was committed and I didn't ever have a plan B. Once you begin thinking about a backup plan, your desire to achieve your ultimate goal decreases. Planning for failure gives you permission to fail. It's just what we do when we are unsure of our ability to succeed. We put up barriers for ourselves. We make sure that we can justify our failure. The more we do these negative things, the things that don't move us forward and jeopardize our progress, the more we will continue to do them. We call them bad habits, but professionals see them as ways that we are sabotaging our own success. When you are trying to lose weight but allow yourself your favorite treat, you're not only putting bad food into your body, but are telling your mind that it is okay to do so. You're granting yourself permission to fail at your goal, and the more you continue to do so, the more permission you give yourself. It becomes an acceptable thing to do and will become familiar and normalized because as humans, we are exceptionally good at adapting to new environments. I had a few beers on Monday, so a few more this week won't hurt, or I skipped gym training at the weekend, so I'll skip tonight and start again on Sunday. We all do it. Here's a quote here. Human beings can get used to virtually anything given plenty of time and no choice in the matter whatsoever. That's Tom Holt from a company called Open Sesame. Military flying training, like most professional training courses, takes a very long time and never really ends. Even when your formalized three-year training course finishes, you still have check rides and extra qualifications to gain. We tell the students to just take it one step at a time and remember that every summit you see is a false one. The end of one training course just signals the start of the next. We tell them to take it inch by inch, just one step after the other, but whatever they do, they must keep moving forward. Those who do well have a self-belief that for many outside of aviation is hard to imagine. It is probably why pilots are often seen as arrogant, whereas a better name for what they might display might be an apprehensive confidence. I try and remember to fail fast and often. I learn much faster than if I try to avoid failure altogether. I anticipate that there will be tough times. Those are the times when we would have crawled back into our caves, licked our wounds from the saber-toothed tiger attack and done some healing. I understand that perseverance is key to achieving my goals. This is a quote from a great film. Now I can't do it for you. I'm too old. You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from you. I mean, that's part of life. But you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out life's this game of inches. On this team, we fight for that inch. 
we claw with our fingernails for that inch because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the difference between winning and losing. And that was Al Pacino in any given Sunday. I know that I mustn't give up because I am yet to achieve results. Study have shown that small business owners tend to quit just as they are starting to gain traction and become profitable. So be arrogant in your drive to succeed in whatever it is you want to do. Own your failure and embrace it for what it is. An incredible learning opportunity. Constantly appraise your own performance. How are you holding yourself back? Learn to take more risk and have less regret. Execute your plan and do the thinking on the go. Too many people spend too much time waiting for the right opportunity that never comes. Negative self-talk is so powerful and controlling that it often steals our ambition and stops us realizing our dreams. How many times have you stopped before you've even begun and without a rational reason for doing so? It wasn't a lack of skills, ability, or determination that prevented you from achieving your goals, but a very hidden and a very real underconfidence. We should constantly look for ways that we are self-sabotaging and recognize it for what it is, a call for help. And as I told my student the day I graduated him for military flying training, the only person that can answer that call is ourselves. Guys, I really appreciate it. Um, It's got a few likes, not many. And I think that's because it's a difficult thing to admit to ourselves that we probably are self-sabotaging. And I know that. I'm doing the same thing in many areas. I'm just not executing, not going... I'm thinking about it too much. It's like procrastinating, procrastinating, isn't it? It's just, I'm thinking, well, what is the plan A? What's the plan B? What if this doesn't work out? Whereas I just need to get out there and do it. That's why recently I just went and joined a CrossFit gym. I wasn't doing much exercise. And I went, right, I'm going to go to that CrossFit gym, which I hate. And so I was standing outside the CrossFit gym and I was thinking, I just got to put a foot inside this gym. Once I cross this, this threshold to get inside that gym, I was thinking, are people going to, am I the wrong age group? Are people going to like me when I fit in? And literally this guy just came out. He was like, hey, bro, what's up? You coming in? I was like, oh, dude, I'm new. He was like, yeah, yeah, we're all new. Everyone's new. Everyone's new once, come in. And with that guy, he was so accepting of the fact that I hadn't done CrossFit for five years and they were just great. And now I go down there and it hurts like hell. It's the most painful thing ever. But I just did it. I didn't think about it too much. I did it. So I really appreciate you listening to this. This is like 22 minutes long. I need to go now. And I really appreciate your support. There's some great guys out there um, that write to me and stuff. Um, and as much as I appreciate the question saying, I'm 14 years old and I want to be a pilot, I get that. I'm answering those questions. I also appreciate the more senior guys with the comments that you, uh, you have. I really do. So thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, Tim Davies, Flash Performance. 